0: You're listening to Crossroads International Church podcast. Welcome! We hope this podcast will bless you from wherever you're listening to it. For more information, go to our website at xrgs.nl And now, let's get into the podcast. Welcome, beloved people of God. And as, uh, as we've already said also to all of you as you view online, visitors, vacationers, regulars, We'd love to have you with us. My name's Anton Stokes. As Randy said, I'm a member of the preaching team here at Crossroads. And by now, you know the drill for this series. We're going to look at one of the stories of uh, conversion in the book of Acts. But before we do that, we're going to have an interview with one of the members of um, our community. You could say remote members of our community who, who serve in God's mission. This week we get to meet a pastor who uh, works with a church who uh, suffer with and come alongside people who are suffering. He works in a a war zone. If I tell you he works in Ukraine, you probably know, many of you, that I'm talking about Varim Prozhak. Uh, And it's a real privilege for us here at Crossroads to be part of supporting the work they do. It's really brave and compassionate work they do and Vadim we'd love to talk to you would you like to join us on stage thank you welcome good Vadim. Morning. I'm gonna leave most of the talking to you uh, would you like to just introduce yourself a little bit tell us a little bit about your work where it is in Ukraine what it's like there
1: good morning everyone my name is Vadim um, I'm a, a little I, bit forward I am a pastor of a mid-side church in Ukraine Evangelical Christian Baptist Church, and uh, from the Parisian city, maybe you hear this name of the city on the news recent days, and we are really close to the front line, and we, we try to uh, serve people who suffer from the war. Yeah.
0: So tell us a little bit about what that looks like on a day-to-day basis. What is it that you... <laughs> it's difficult to,
1: <laughs> to talk about this, yeah. Very really close to the front lines. That's why church—it's like a, like a hub for displaced people. And we try to provide a shelter for them. Uh, we try to host them for a few days and provide food. Also, <clears throat> we try to uh, to serve the locals, like poor people, because. Uh, With the war, many businesses just moved out of the city, and there are still many people who can't really move out or know where to go. Uh,
0: You're saying to me that thousands of people pass through in a week quite often.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, Every week, uh, Yeah, we we give out um, up to 600 food parcels, and on a daily basis we feed. More than hundred people, and basically we try to be the church, and to mm-hmm. have church services, and we run youth ministry, teenage mm-hmm. ministry. We try to live kind of normal life, because mm-hmm. but still situation is not normal. Yeah. yeah,
0: and you're telling me that it can be quite variable who actually lands up coming in on a particular day. You're never quite sure.
1: Yeah, one of the things that uh, we see how God works. I really like this verse in the Bible, in Book of Acts when. Uh, God told uh, Apostle Paul that don't be afraid. I have many people in the city, uh, God's people in the city. And because of the city's shelter almost every night, the other night, um, like even the church people, they sometimes they move out they, for a few weeks uh, because after the like, heavy shelling, they come back. But still, um, I'm really touched to see how God works, that every day when we come and we have ministry to do, there are new faces that join the efforts, and Mm -hmm. and it's amazing to see that really uh, God has many people to carry out uh, His work, and it's actually something that really touched my heart, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, always humbles my heart uh, when you trust the Lord, and you can rely on Him. And uh, we witnessed so many times how God is faithful in providing uh, whatever His people need. And we to carry out this humanitarian work, or just just to be there, um, we experience every day His provision. We don't have any like uh, big sponsor or big donor; just many small small like uh, rivers of income. But every day we have what to give out to people. It mm-hmm. humbles my heart to see that God is God is there. He's just <laughs> and in the middle of uh, of this trouble, this crisis. And sometimes you just I, I usually spend like whole day in the church there, and uh, many people just come to talk, just just come to mm-hmm. sit there, just come to be there, and uh, when they when when they they need someone to to listen to them.
0: And it's easy sometimes for us to just say God works in everything, but I guess for you guys that's a very real experience. What does that look like in in a place that's ravaged by war? How do you recognize that God's present and working?
1: I would maybe. Uh, Tell you many about many small and big miracles, and in the life of church people, personal life. But in, in daily basis, is basically um, you never know what what will this day bring into your mm-hmm. life. But you you go and you serve. It's hard to plan ahead of time a lot, because sometimes we need to be really flexible. But you you feel just feel that God is present there, mm-hmm. like in, and we see many people. Uh, come into faith through these difficulties. And we actually, uh, I just shared with someone this morning, like um, uh, this year, uh, because, uh, despite the war, we have four times more uh, weddings in our church. And it's also God-blessed in many ways for our church.
0: Yeah. yeah. Life becomes very real in those circumstances. Yes, so, yes. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, as well when we were talking about sort of your the sense of how many people you get to reach through this because you have such a... Do you want to tell us a little bit about the numbers you told me that you sort of, that really inspired me?
1: Yeah, um, every day we have some uh, something uh, that would be um, uh, like evangelical, uh, evangelism work, like evangelism, because we, we, we feed people, we provide lunches, or uh, we give out like food parcels. And each time we try to, like um, like, relieve their need and also to give um, a word of hope, to, mm-hmm. to give them the gospel. And um, I would say like um, maybe um, uh, during the months we have more than 2,000 people uh, here in the gospel just just because of different uh, activities. We try to reach out to parents with children or to handicapped people. And, and basically... Um, I think that uh, many people in Ukraine they consider themselves to be orthodox and that's why they kind of um, really look low on evangelical churches mm-hmm. but because of the need and the war they stepped over their fear or i don't know like what to say and they enter the church building and they are really surprised that uh, there is a church there is like a god real god mm-hmm. living god and god works and god heals and this is a, I think it's a also a big blessing during yeah. the war that people are, op- pe- people are open to talk about God. Yeah.
0: Thanks, Vadim.
1: Yeah, and uh, I would like to ask, if you will think about uh, Soparovaja, please pray for all these people who have heard the gospel, yeah. like thousands of them. And uh, I pray for their journey yeah. toward God and toward faith and salvation during this day. Thank you. Thank you. We uh, a part of our church uh, thanks to crossroads we came to Netherlands, like elderly and uh, families with many children. Now they're a little bit uh, east north, northeast, east mm-hmm. and maybe like 60 people or so, but still um, big group in Zaporozhye back. And we, we never thought that war will, war will take as, as long as it is. But at the same time, we. We trust God. He knows what to do. Yeah. I, I will be going to Ukraine Thursday. Maybe if you'll pray about my way there. And yeah. this time I would like to take my family just for a short time. And our daughter would like to be baptized there. We oh, will have right. a baptism here. Yeah. And it's also praise the Lord. We will have twice more people that want to baptize than usually. It's, Super. Yeah, it's also amazing.
0: love to pray with that with you. Will you all pray with me? I will pray for us as a church what I remember, and trust God to have heard what you've asked that maybe I forget. Lord God, we're we're thankful, thankful for for men like Vadim and all the people whose names we don't get to hear. Serve with him, love your world as you love it, suffer in your world alongside those who suffer. We pray bless them, these people who serve you, with the assurance of your presence, peace and safety in their hearts, if not in their surroundings. With confidence and hope that whatever happens, you have them, you have their eternal salvation. But we pray for their very practical needs as well. We pray that you will continue to provide for so many who have lost homes, have no food, who have lost family lost so much will you make your church a light in the world and especially through this community equip them give them the words to say in places where there are no words to say we pray for their country ukraine we pray for peace when we don't know as humans how to bring peace even in our own hearts we know jesus you are the prince of peace make a way And lastly, we just pray for Vadim himself. As he travels back with his family, we pray, watch over their path, their journey, their safety. We pray for the joyful moment of his daughter's baptism. You be present in a very precious way in that. And we pray for the many baptisms that that they hope that they've invested your word in, that they've planted, that many will come. And for all of those that they've spoken to, that, that seed of what is different about Jesus, what is unique about this, what is the grace That you don't find anywhere else that they would question that and they would follow it to the source they would find you pray all these things and your blessing over these good people in the name of jesus by the power of your spirit excuse me if i'm also a little bit emotional after that thanks for you this may be worth mentioning as you've probably started to recognize with me by now so you don't get distracted by it later i can get quite emotional And it's not always just about something that is actually specifically deep on my heart, so you don't need to, or specifically that I suffer, so you don't need to worry about me. Please listen to the message. That's what God wants you to hear. What prevents me? What prevents me? That's the question that today's text is going to ask us. Last week, we looked at Philip's encounter with a man who is proud of his great power and his accomplishments. He needed to repent in order to understand how Jesus was truly good news for him. In this week's story, Philip encounters a man with a very different need. He's a man from Ethiopia who's devoted to the Lord God of Israel, but he's unable to satisfy his holy requirements. He finds himself excluded from full participation in God's kingdom because of his identity, because of his past, things that he's not able to change for himself. And once again, the author Luke fills his narrative with rich details about places and people, particularly about the identity of our main character. And we'll spend some time understanding his religious and social context so that his story really comes home to us. We're going to read the passage from Scripture in two parts. Because I want to unpack the guy's identity before we go into what happens when he encounters Philip. So we pick up the first part immediately carrying on from the story of Simon, the magician. It's in the book of Acts, chapter 8, reading from verse 26 to 28. For those of you who want to read with Acts, chapter 8, verses 26 to 28. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, He had come to worship in Jerusalem, and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. Shall we pray? Lord God, as always, when we come and gather around your word, we come with open and expectant hearts. We come to the written word, knowing that when we listen to it with open hearts, Lord God, your spirit Brings a living word into our hearts. Shows us Jesus. Helps us love him. And helps us love others as he loves us. And it helps us desire to be like him and to rest in the love that he has for us. So today we pray. Let us hear this story. Let us hear what it means for us. Let us respond to you in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, whatever it looked like to hear from an angel, it was convincing enough for Philip to put aside any questions about God's reasons and get up and go on a long walk from the region of Samaria, north of Jerusalem, to Gaza Road, which heads down from Jerusalem towards Egypt was probably over 60 kilometers, you can see it, I think we're going to get a map up here from the red star at the top to the red star at the bottom, something like that. So it was a trip of probably about 60 kilometers, Um, and there's much that we could say about Philip here, but I want to jump right into looking at the traveler from Ethiopia and focus what we can learn from his story. He was traveling by chariot, the text says. Historians agree it would not have been a flashy little horse-drawn number like we might imagine racing in the Colosseum at Rome from some of our recent Hollywood movies. It would most likely have been an ox cart with room for his wealthy passenger to sit in, separate seat for a driver, space to carry all the essentials for a long journey. You see, he was on the return leg of a journey of somewhere over 4,000 kilometers from the ancient kingdom of Nubia, which the Bible also refers to as Cush, all the way to Jerusalem and back. I think we're going to get a map of that. And excuse my rather crude red line, but that gives you a little bit of an idea. It wasn't the same region as Ethiopia as we know it today. Ethiopia, as referred to in the Bible, was more the region in Sudan, southern Egypt. And he was probably heading back to the city of Meru, which was the capital city of of that ancient kingdom. It would have been a journey of many months, a few tens of kilometers a day in an ox cart, quite possibly as long as half a year. And it would not have been all on good, nice Roman highways. So let's get rid of our idea that this was actually some nice holiday experience that he was on we are told he had come to jerusalem to worship which means he was also a worshipper of the god of israel how that came to be we are not told but the people of nubia would have known of the jewish religion from ancient times at least from the time when the queen of sheba went to visit solomon when he was in all of his glory and he was so famous that was many centuries before given the length of this trip it was probably a once in a lifetime pilgrimage and he must have been fairly devoted to his faith. When was the last time you took six months off to bounce around in an uncomfortable ox cart to seek your God and to worship Him? He was a man of wealth, privilege, and power. We see this from his role as a court official of Queen Candace who was in charge of all her treasure. You could say he was a minister of finance. We see it also in his personal resources. He could afford a a six-month sabbatical, his own chariot and driver, his own copy of the scroll of Isaiah, and we need to not overlook that, was a luxury possession at a time when documents were handwritten, parchment and papyrus were costly, and scribes were highly skilled labor. When Philip's meets him, he's going down from Jerusalem to Gaza. The highlight of his long trip is behind him. And only the long road home to look forward to. He's returning to his old identity and position. No longer a traveling pilgrim, going up to worship his God, but a politician, a finance minister, returning to his responsibilities. What kind of mood might he have been in? Well, let's imagine for a moment what it was like for him to worship in Jerusalem. You see, we're also told that he was an Ethiopian, which religiously means he was a Gentile, a non-Jew. There was no racial prejudice about his dark skin in the Roman Empire, but it mattered very much to the Jews that he was not a descendant of the tribes of Jacob. Jacob because the tribes of Jacob were the people whom God had chosen to bring especially close to Himself, so that they could become a blessing to the world. And on top of that, he was a eunuch as well. It was quite common in the ancient royal courts to require high officials to be made eunuchs. This condition prevented them from having children. They'd have no ambition for their own offspring. They wouldn't interfere with the women of the royal household. So they were more likely to be trustworthy and loyal. But Deuteronomy 23, 1-3 tells us that this blemish, regardless of whether by birth, by choice, or by force, was offensive to God's holiness. All eunuchs were excluded from the assembly of Israel without any possibility of reprieve. Such a condition prevented even men of the priestly tribe of the Levites from serving in the sanctuary of the temple. You can read about that instruction in Leviticus chapter 21, verses 16 to 24, for those of you who are interested. So his nationality and his physical condition then were marks of shame and exclusion for his faith ones that he could not erase and ones that he could not hide. As a devoted worshiper of the Lord God of Israel, he most probably would have wanted to become a full convert. Even though Gentile converts remained second-class citizens, they continued to be excluded from the sanctuary. But there were three, three requirements for conversion. First, he needed to bring a sacrifice to the temple that he's done. But he would have been prevented from the next two requirements. Circumcision, which was required as the ultimate sign of Jewish identity. And a convert had to be purified in a ritual bath, a baptism. But if he presented himself to be circumcised, they would see his condition and refuse. So under the law of the Old Testament, he would always be a third-class citizen in the eyes of God's true people. And by implication to God himself. He would have been painfully confronted by this when he arrived in Jerusalem. After his long journey, he could not even enter the inner court of the temple. That was the holiest place closest to the presence of God. And this was reserved for Jews only. And it was surrounded by a barrier that separated it from the outer court, the so-called court of the Gentiles. That was the closest that non-Jews could get to the Lord God of Israel. There was a warning inscribed on stone tablets at all the entrances to the inner courts. Archaeologists have found some of those old tablets. And if you translate it roughly, it's something like this. No foreigner is to enter within the four courts and the balustrades around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. it's quite likely that he would also have observed the unholy behavior of some of the Jews themselves with their money exchanges and traders inside the temple courts. Those practices had outraged Jesus not long before, as Luke records in his gospel in chapter 19. After his own long journey, this might have made him feel even more keenly the injustice of his own exclusion. Despite their shameful behavior and his own devotion, these others had access to the most holy place, close to God's presence, and he did not. And now, when Philip finds him, he's reading a passage from Scripture that he can't understand. And all the while, he's leaving behind him the land where the scribes and the scholars who might have been able to help him understand Scripture live. So let's pick up the rest of the story in Acts chapter 8 at verse 29. And we'll read through to verse 40. Acts chapter 8, 29 to 40. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join the chariot. So Philip ran over to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, "How can I, unless someone guides me?" And he invited Philip up to sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this: "Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation?" For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. Good old Philip, what does he carry on doing? As he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns that he came to in Caesarea, until he came to Caesarea. It must have been a surprise when Philip came running up to his chariot. But the Spirit of God had prepared the ground. The traveler had a, has a humble, open-hearted attitude. He doesn't stand on his superior rank or status and chase Philip away. This picture came to me of actually riding up on our bicycle next to the finance minister and listening in on whatever document that he's reading. But yeah, Philip dares to do that and finds that he's open to someone to guide him. That word guide is the same word that Jesus uses in John's gospel, when he explains the work of the Holy Spirit in showing who Jesus is. Remember, Pastor Paul preached a whole sermon to us on this, just a couple of weeks back in our series on the Holy Spirit. John 16, 13, Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. And Philip was indeed equipped by the Holy Spirit to be a guide. And he told him the good news. Philip starts with this same scripture, the one the Ethiopian traveler was already busy with. The Old Testament was the only authoritative scripture we should keep in mind. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. Think about it. So the Old Testament was the only authoritative scripture they had at the time. And if Philip was to guide the Ethiopian to understand the good news about Jesus there are few better places to start with than the text that he was reading. It starts in Isaiah 52, 13, and it runs to the end of chapter 53. It speaks of a servant of God who would come and suffer for God's people. And its meaning was much debated by the Jewish scholars of the time. So the Ethiopian travelers question about whom does the prophet say this, was actually an ongoing debate at the time. From our own place in history, we might assume that this was obvious. But in those days, it was not. It was Jesus himself who first made clear to his disciples that the suffering servant was the same person as Messiah, the promised anointed king of David, from David's line. Philip would have started with that, explaining that the text was, he was reading was about Messiah. It was Messiah himself who had to come and suffer for the sins of his people, not just for the Jews, but for all nations. The Ethiopian needed to hear how Jesus had dealt with his exclusion from God's holy and perfect presence, in spite of his imperfections and his inability to change his condition and his ancestry. So Philip might have explained it as the writer of the book of Hebrews later did. Hebrews 7.19 says, For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. Then Philip might have told him about how that great hope has indeed now come. Through the man Jesus who had recently been crucified and resurrected from the dead. He has now established this new way to be intimate with God. It deals once for all with our inability to satisfy God's holy, righteous requirements. Philip might have pointed to a passage a few chapters further on in Isaiah, in the very scroll he was reading. Isaiah 56, 4-5 talks about this new covenant. It says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord, say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuchs say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. This new covenant covers even the inclusion of foreigners and eunuchs. If it includes those who were previously explicitly excluded by the law, then no one is excluded anymore. Philip might have also considered the Ethiopian sense of shame and injustice having been excluded for so long. He could have used the very text that the traveler was reading to explain how God in his Messiah suffers both for us and with us. The verse in Acts 8.33 comes from Isaiah 53.8. It says this, In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? Jesus, as both man and God, lived among us to identify himself with us and to share all of our humanity. He comes alongside you in your own suffering, knowing what you are struggling with. He, too, was humiliated, excluded by the rich and the powerful of Jewish religion and politics. He, too, was dealt with unjustly, He too was denied the joy of his own children. Yet he suffered these things willingly and in silence. He did that out of his compassion to participate with us in our suffering. And in his willingness to die for our sins and imperfections. So we can share in his goodness. A few verses earlier in Isaiah, you can read this. Isaiah 53, 5, same passage. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And if you read on only a few verses, you find this. Isaiah 53, 12. He bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You see, His love for us is so great that after enduring rejection, hostility, beating, and crucifixion at our hands, and on our behalf, He's right now interceding to God the Father for us. Because He is a perfect human, He is now able to stand in God's presence without blemish, as we are not. And in his compassion for our condition as his fellow humans, he intercedes for each of us to be forgiven. And to be made pure and acceptable to God. And he pleads for us by his right. Because in his own willing yet unjust suffering, God has dealt with the just consequences of our sins. So God accepts his intercession and counts us righteous on his behalf, not our own. Isaiah 53, 11, again, same passage. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. By our standards, that's indeed crooked accounting. In spite of ourselves, we can now enter God's presence because Jesus vouches for our adoption as children. He offers his own credentials on our behalf. And he vouches for us that we will indeed eventually be made in the image of his own identity. That's the perfect humor. So, as of immediately, we can stand, we can leave all the brokenness of our own identity. Our incomplete business, our imperfections, our as yet unfulfilled expectations at the door and enter into the presence of God. One of his beloved children, the Apostle Paul later explained it this way. In Galatians 4 we read, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So when the Ethiopian eunuch asks Philip, What prevents me from being baptized? It was a genuine heartfelt question. Not just, shall we do this thing? But in deep sincerity, if I've understood you, Philip, this is wonderful news. If a perfect offering has been made to cover all my imperfections and sins forever, so I can be fully included as one of God's children, it sounds too good to be true. What else is needed that prevents me from acknowledging that in baptism? And Philip would have said, if you believe Jesus is who he said he is, and has done what he said he's done, then nothing, nothing prevents you. You see, baptism for the Ethiopian was the sign of full inclusion into the household of the one true God that he longed for. And with coming of Messiah, that same symbol takes on a rich new meaning for him. There are no more sacrifices to be brought or temples to travel to. No injustice and suffering that is not shared. No sin or imperfection or condition that has not been covered. Baptism... And our remembrance of it is the joyful act of accepting that those things have been washed and covered by the sacrifice Jesus made for us. It's simply a choice of faith to depend only on the credentials of Jesus and to let go of all of our own insufficient credentials. The Ethiopian rejoiced to leave his credentials in the water. He went under as a Gentile, a eunuch, a finance minister, a devoted pilgrim. None of these things earned him any rights before a holy God. But he rose from the water simply as the adopted, beloved child of a compassionate and gracious God. Accounted righteous and perfect and included only because of Jesus and, well, and nothing. Nothing else is needed. In Jesus, we are loved and accepted by God. Dot. We're not instantaneously free from all our faults and failings. And the holy and righteous God of the Old Testament does not somehow disappear on the cross of Jesus. But in the upside-down justice of God's gracious love, That's the only way we get in. It's the only way we could have got in. The God of all history and His compassion and love knew it and planned from it from the beginning, from before creation. Ephesians 1.4, Paul says this, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. He's planned it that way so that we can come to him with all our wounds and brokenness and sin. And by his wounds and his power and in his time be healed. This is the way that becomes visible finally and fully in Jesus. So what prevents us today? Please listen. some of us need to hear this especially today. Whatever desolate or isolated road you maybe find yourself on, Jesus is running up alongside you to ask you this. Do you understand who I am? What I've done? Do you know that I am the compassionate God? who suffers with you in your humiliation and in your suffering and in your injustice? Do you know that I am the perfect representative whose intercession has secured your acceptance by God my Father? Do you know that I have made a way open for you to be adopted as children of God? There's nothing you've done that you think you are that can prevent you from receiving the love and acceptance I have already bought for you? Will you invite him up into your ox cart and let Jesus take you down into the water? Wash you. Embrace you. Bind up your wounds, clothe you in his royal robes, and be good news to you. you. see, whatever you are, whatever you may have done, whoever you think you are, whatever offering you thought you had to bring, just leave it at the door. Put on his royal robes as your own identity, and enter into the love of the Father. Shall we pray? Uh, Father, it's good that it feels good. That it comes out in emotion. When we remember what you've done. those of us who struggle to get over the things that prevent us, Holy Spirit, come. Touch that sore place, that scarred place, that proud place, that angry place, that disappointed place. Show us Jesus love from the cradle to the cross to the grave and back to heaven where he stands and to for us show us that Jesus help us to just rest in his arms amen thank you for listening and we hope that you have a wonderful week see you next time